Hi, this is Sarah McCaslin with the Forgotten Sheep Podcast. And today's topic is a German theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was an influential German theologian, pastor, educator, and writer. Now, before you turn this off thinking, oh, a theologian sounds boring, let me tell you, Dietrich is anything but boring, okay? He was an active resistor of the Nazi party during World War II, endangered his life doing so, he ended up being hung. So, he's very interesting, so don't turn this off yet. He sought, as part of his lifelong journey, to understand the true meaning of church and to correctly apply the teachings of the Bible into our lives. He was very interested in Christian ethics. Okay, He was an adamant resistor of the Nazi movement, especially when it took control of the churches. He was a founding member of the German Confessing Church, and after taking numerous stands against the Nazis, he participated in a plot to assassinate Hitler. As a result of that, he was executed along with one of his brothers and two brothers-in-law. And his theological writings are now considered Christian classics and remain relevant to this very day, and he's often quoted. In fact, if you've ever heard the term cheap grace, uh, many credit Dietrich Bonhoeffer as the originator of that term. So let's jump right in and start talking about his childhood. Uh, He was born in a good-sized family on February 4, 1906, in Breslau, Germany, along with his twin sister, Sabine. His father, Karl, was a successful neurologist, psychiatrist, and professor at the University of Berlin. And his mother was Paula, and she was an educator and very dedicated mother. And get this, guys. She was the daughter of Kaiser Wilhelm's preacher at court. So Dietrich's family was uh, considered aristocratic, liberal, and very well-to-do, but only religious enough to be socially acceptable. Now, in the South, we have the Bible Belt, and it's very important to be religious, to be socially acceptable in some circles. So that might give you a little bit of context by what we mean. Now, if you uh, go online and you do searches for pictures of Dietrich when he was a child, you'll find lots of family pictures of kids uh, slightly, slightly reminiscent of some of the images you might see in The Sound of Music. He had a lot of brothers and sisters. Um, They were uh, a very beautiful family. Okay, so moving on. When Dietrich was 12 years old, his older brother was killed in action during World War One, and this left an indelible imprint on Dietrich's soul and his heart. And World War One was an extremely difficult time uh, for the German civilians. His family, even though they were wealthy, had a really hard time trying to get enough food to survive, especially toward the end of the war. And during that time, Uh, Dietrich saw Germany, the Germany that he loved, the Germany that he grew up in, as a patriotic German. He saw it crippled, truly crippled, as a result of the peace treaties that were made at the end of World War I. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So he grew up very gifted in music, 
And his family had always assumed that because he loved music so much and he was so good at it, that he would have a career in music. And they were kind of planning on Dietrich becoming a concert pianist. But um, he didn't have the same ideas his parents did, as in the case with a lot of kids. At the young age of 14, he bravely announced to his family that he planned to be a theologian and a minister. Now, this is from a family that, like I said, they only attended church enough to be religiously or socially acceptable. That was the limit of their religion, no more than that. Uh, Even though his grandfather was preacher at court to Kaiser Wilhelm, his mother was not that interested in Christianity and religion. And so, out of the blue, this nominal church-going family has a son that says, I'm going to be a theologian and a minister. Well, his dad was horrified, uh, absolutely horrified. That was not the path he intended for his son to take. And he insisted that uh, Dietrich change his mind. But as much as his dad tried, he could not deter Dietrich from this calling. And mind you, at this time, when Dietrich made this decision, he was only 14 years old. And so to that end, Dietrich uh, made his plans. Uh, He attended college. When he started, he had been so studious in his earlier years that he was a year ahead of his age group. And so he completed the equivalent of a bachelor's degree and a master's degree at the Protestant Faculty of Theology at the university. Um, I'm not sure which one it was, but he got his doctorate in theology at Berlin University in 1927, and Dietrich graduated summa cum laude. At that time, he was just 21. He was only 21 when he got his doctorate. And he was too young to be ordained by the Lutheran Church. Now, that's an interesting conundrum. You finish your school and you've got all your education. You're ready to jump in, but you, even though you have all this education, you're too young to be a minister. So, um, what they did is he was sent for a few years to minister at two German congregations and Barcelona, Spain, uh, but he was not officially licensed by the Lutheran Church. It sounds kind of like uh, like an internship of sorts. So after serving what is kind of like an internship as a minister in Barcelona, Spain, in 1930, Dietrich was invited to the United States to complete some postgraduate studies at the Union Theological Seminary in New York was a fantastic opportunity for uh, Dietrich. Now, he's only 23 years old at this time, and the time that he spends in America is going to have a major impact on Dietrich's worldview. And again, keeping this in context, this is around 1930. So he came here to the U.S. from Germany, and he was surprised at the lax attitudes that American theology students had towards theology and education. And he, what upset him the most was the discrimination that he saw against African Americans. Now, I know we think of Germany and we automatically think of the Holocaust and we think of anti-Semitism and racism against uh, people uh, such as the Gypsies, the Roma people, of course, the Jews. That's true. But at that time in Germany, while racism may have been active to a degree, it was not openly practiced. 
And so he comes to America and discovers that racism towards African Americans is perfectly socially acceptable. So while there were, of course, there were racists in Germany, pre-World War II Germany, it wasn't socially acceptable to outwardly be racist against people. So as a young man, he was very surprised by this and very disappointed by this. So, uh, racism in the U.S. was actually so bad in the eyes of some of the German people that Dietrich's own brother-in-law, a Jewish lawyer, said he would not want to live in a country that treated people openly the way that the Americans treated African Americans. It was that shocking to them. Well, in the U.S., Dietrich's favorite church was the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, which was a primarily African-American church. And there he taught Sunday school and had the opportunity to serve as a lay deacon. And while he was there also, he fell in love with the African-American spirituals. He fell in love with their music, with the depth of the meaning in them. And... Uh, while he was in the U.S., he had an opportunity to travel extensively. So, I want to talk about some of his experiences here in the U.S. because it affects his, uh, his viewpoint of the world. The first one that I read about was kind of an odd experience. Now, remember that Dietrich lost his older brother to the war, World War I. And that upset him very badly, of course, losing a brother like that, the impact that it had on the family, the impact that it had on his mother, especially. So while he was in the U.S., Dietrich went to the movies to see the film All Quiet on the Western Front. This was the original version, uh, not the remake uh, that I believe starred Gary Cooper. This was the original one. And the movie which is based on a book, is about a 19-year-old boy who joined the German army during World War I. This sounds a lot like Dietrich's brother. The young man joined after hearing stirring, patriotic speeches from one of his teachers. Now, this hit home with Dietrich. He could understand this. He could understand this character. It was so much like his brother. And... Uh, in the movie, as he's seen the experiences of this character uh, during wartime, in the trenches during World War One, and many of the awful things that happened there in the trenches, he began to cry during the film. And uh, he just couldn't get over the emotional impact of this. And he said afterwards, after he saw that film, he had a much better understanding of his brother that had died. He understood why he did what he did. He understood what he went through, and he gained a better understanding. Now, there was another experience that Dietrich had while he was in the uh, U.S. He said that he experienced a major change in how he thought about the things of God. While he was here, he said he shifted from phraseology to reality, from words to actions, so to speak. It was one thing to read the words of the Bible, to read theology, to read all these different things. And it was another thing to take those words from the Bible 
and put them into action. How do you correctly take the Bible and put it into action in your daily life? So that was a big thing for Dietrich. That's going to affect, that's going to have a big impact on his um, discussions of what he calls cheap grace versus uh, expensive grace. Also, while in the U.S., he learned how to drive. He failed his driving test three times, and I think it was uh, joked that he may have driven a couple of driving instructors to insanity, but he managed to pass his test, and good on him. That shows us a little bit about his level of determination and his willingness to overcome failure. He also visited Cuba uh, while he was here, and he said that his ideas on ecumenicalism of one church were also forming, and he had a major um, paradigm shift, a major shift in thought. Uh, In Germany, the church was very intricately linked with the state. Now, in the U.S., it's not that way. The state doesn't uh, interfere in the churches that much. We may think they do, but in reality, it's not like it is in other countries. And so he said that coming from Germany to the U.S., helped him to realize that the church belonged to God, not to the church leaders and not to the government. And I think sometimes we do get mistaken idea here in the U.S. that the church belongs to the church leaders or to the people. No, the church in its truest sense belongs to God. Now, while he was in uh, Washington, D.C., Uh, He went with one of his friends, an African-American student named Frank Fisher. And on their way uh, to visit Howard University, Dietrich and Frank stopped at a diner. And Dietrich was shocked beyond measure when the diner refused to serve Frank because of his color. Um, They just wouldn't serve Frank. Oh, they'd serve Dietrich. They were more than happy to sell uh, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Dietrich food but not Frank, because Frank had dark-colored skin and brown eyes. And Dietrich's response was, well, if you're not serving my friend, I'm not coming here. And they went somewhere else. And Dietrich remained friends, good friends with Frank for the rest of his life. And as he came face-to-face with this openly practiced racism, he found some aspects of it absolutely ironic. For example, there were what they called Negro railroad cars, where um, the African Americans had to ride. They couldn't ride in a train car with white people in uh, certain areas of the U.S. And Dietrich thought this was hilarious because there was so much more room in the Negro train cars, and they were so much cleaner and quieter than the ones that the white people were in. So he thought this was definitely ironic. Here the white people would lift themselves up against the African Americans, and yet the African American cars were much cleaner and more well-organized and well-behaved. And he said other aspects, especially racism coming from professing Christians, he found completely repugnant. And I firmly agree with that. Racism, racism has no part in the life of a Christian. And if we see aspects of racism developing in our thoughts, we need to take those to the Lord and confess and repent and ask the Lord to help us overcome that. Racism does not belong in the heart, life, or words 
of a Christian, not even as jokes or humor. It does not belong. It has no place. In Jesus Christ, we are all one. In fact, in Jesus Christ, we're neither male nor female, but we are all one, all one race, all one people. So racism and sexism are wrong in the eyes of God. Well, no doubt this exposure here in the U.S. to open racism informed his attitudes when he eventually began to return to Germany. Well, it was during this time that he spent in the United States that Dietrich began to develop his thoughts on the subject of cheap grace versus costly grace. And I'd like to go over what he said on that subject. Now this is just a and this is just excerpts from his writings on the subject, but it'll help you understand where he's coming from on this. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury, from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns the sinner. And it is grace, because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price, and that which has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. That is a summary of Dietrich's teachings on cheap grace versus costly grace. Now, at this time in the United States of America, we are seeing the widespread teaching of what Dietrich described as cheap grace. And this should be very disconcerting, very upsetting for us as Christians when we see cheap grace taught. Because in Germany, these teachings of cheap grace preceded Germany falling under the totalitarian regime of Nazism. And it makes me wonder here in the U.S. as we're seeing a similar pattern of teaching in the churches, as we're seeing grace twisted into something that we can use to fulfill our own selfish desires, that we can use to fulfill our own greed, our own envy, our own lust. What totalitarian regime might be waiting in the wings to topple the United States of America? This is food for thought. 
You might not agree with my thoughts on what may be about to happen in the U.S., but you cannot deny the history of what happened in Germany. And the fall of the German church no doubt was tied to this careless teaching of what Dietrich described as cheap grace. And my friends, if you are listening to this, I ask you to join me in seeking from the Lord that costly grace, that true grace that is bestowed not on ourselves, but is truly bestowed by the hand of God in our lives. So in 1931, Dietrich returns to Germany, glad to be home with his family. I began teaching theology at the University of Berlin, and for a time went back to teaching Sunday school and confirmation classes. Now, many say that during this time period, after he uh, returned from the U.S., that he changed from being intellectually interested in theology to being determined to live his life according to the teachings of the Bible. And that may well be when Dietrich's uh, conversion took place, when he was born again. It is fascinating that just as the Nazis were about to rise to power, this man that they would view as a serious threat was shifting his viewpoint from an intellectual appreciation of the Bible and its teachings and maybe seeing it as a philosophy of life and instead looking at it and saying, okay, how do I take these teachings and live them out? How do I follow the example of Jesus Christ? How do I correctly put this into action in my life? How do I remain in the spirit of these teachings? So, that's a big change for Dietrich. So then he got ordained as a minister, finally old enough to get ordained, 25 years old, ordained in the Lutheran Church. two Two years later, the Nazis rise to power. Now, if we're going to look at Dietrich's life, we need to understand post-World War I Germany, okay? And in no way am I trying to justify anything that the Germans did. I am merely trying to present the facts from the viewpoint of Dietrich and his family, what they saw, what they understood. This gives us insight into Dietrich himself and also into the attitudes of other Germans during this time. And though we may find researching these types of things uncomfortable, it's important if we as a people don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. Sometimes in learning, in understanding the best way to move forward, we have to look at unpleasant aspects of the past in order to learn from it. So, uh, when I've presented this before, I have entitled this slide, Understanding Post-World War I Germany. The German people as a whole were despondent after World War I. There were so many sanctions leveled at Germany to keep it from being a threat again that it began to seriously affect the German people. This included a severe reduction in their military. And as the years passed, many Germans felt that their military had been so reduced that they were now in danger from being... uh, overrun. They felt like they didn't even have enough military to protect themselves. There was also a huge economic depression that hit. And then we saw the rise of Hitler. And to many people in Germany, Hitler seemed to be the answer. 
this political leader seemed to be the savior of the nation. He promised to restore Germany to the prominence it once possessed. They were willing to overlook many of his tactics in hopes that Germany could be restored. And Dietrich, however, from the very early days of Hitler's rise, recognized Hitler as a danger. He saw Hitler as a danger to the nation rather than as a savior to the nation. And that's how so many of the German people saw him. Two days, two days after Hitler became chancellor, Bonhoeffer delivered a radio address in which he attacked Hitler. Now guys, I want you to hear this. He warned Germany against slipping into an idolatrous cult of the Fuhrer, the leader, who could very well turn out to be the Verführer, the misleader or seducer. Dietrich's broadcast was cut off the air in the middle of the sentence. Some people say it was because he overran his allotted time. Other people say it was because they didn't like what Dietrich was saying about the Fuhrer. Four months later, Dietrich took another stand this time because of the mistreatment of the Jews. This is what Dietrich had to say. We are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice, but we are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. In his understanding of Jesus' teaching, Dietrich said there was no place for Christians to be silent when others were being abused. Now, that leads to a quote from yet another prominent German pastor at that time, Martin Niemöller, a World War I war hero, highly decorated. First they came for the socialist, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Now this leads us into a discussion of the confessing church. Hitler began to take over the churches and German pastors cooperated because they saw no real harm in it. However, Hitler's goal was for his government-sponsored efforts to unify all the Protestant churches, Lutheran, Reformed, and United, in Germany, and he wanted to unify them all into a single pro-Nazi Protestant Reich Church. Now, at this time, Nazism was not associated with the things that it is in our minds now. Okay, At that time, it was merely a political party that many people saw as a uh, means of change for Germany to rise to its former prominence. Now, while many German pastors were compromising and were allowing this interference in the church, there were pastors that refused to allow the government interference. Uh, and there were some that openly resisted this. There were others that were quietly resisting it. To the active resistors, the church belonged to God. And as soon as it belonged to man, it was no longer a church. So resisting pastors formed what they called the confessing church. In 1934, the leaders of the Confessing Church announced publicly their allegiance first to Jesus Christ. 
We repudiate the false teaching that the church can and must recognize, yet other happenings and powers, personalities and truths as divine revelation alongside this one word of God. Now, what is it they were resisting? You say they were resisting. They were um, the resistance in the church. What were they resisting? Okay, here's a list. Removal of all pastors unsympathetic with National Socialism. Expulsion of members of Jewish descent who might be sent to a separate church. So Jewish converts to Christianity or Jewish people that were members of the Lutheran, uh, of these Lutheran churches would have to go to a different church. Also, they were resisting the implementation of what was called the Aryan paragraph. All those not of the Aryan race, in essence, Jews, were to be dismissed from civil service. This included being dismissed from social clubs, volunteer organizations, universities, and professional groups that they were a member of, that many of these they were dues-paying members of, but they were to be removed simply because of their ethnic background. Now, next, what were they resisting? Removal of the Old Testament from the Bible. Removal of all non-German elements from religious services. And this is the one that I find very distressing. Adoption of a more heroic and positive interpretation of Jesus. That's distressing. Um, Jesus was to be presented in a pro-Aryan fashion um, that should portray him to be battling mightily against corrupt Jewish influences. Now, these are scary things once they allowed the state to start um, meddling in church affairs (laughs) this deeply. These kind of scary things can happen. And this was after... After Hitler promised religious freedom. And he did promise religious freedom. So, the confessing church made it clear to the Nazis that they were protesting the regime's anti-Christian tendencies and anti-Semitism. Now, let me make a point. Were all these pastors innocent of having ever been anti-Semitic? No, they were not. That is an unpleasant fact that uh, has to be dealt with. Niemöller, for example... He had anti-Semitic tendencies, which, while he was in the German concentration camp, a Nazi concentration camp, the Lord convicted him of this and opened his eyes to it, and he repented. So it's not that these pastors were perfect. It's not that these pastors were never racist. It's that they began to recognize the wrongness of it and the wrongness of this widespread, openly practiced racism. So, they also demanded that the regime stop its interference with the internal affairs of the Protestant church in Germany. Um, The Nazis responded. Their response was rather plain. Uh, They arrested several hundred of these dissenting pastors. Uh, They murdered Dr. Friedrich Wiebler, an office manager and legal advisor of the second preliminary church executive of the Confessing Church. Uh, they did that after he was imprisoned in the Sachhausen concentration camp. They confiscated all the funds of the confessing church and forbid the confessing church from taking up collections or offerings. Now, as I said, these leaders, people like um, Bonhoeffer, uh, Niemöller, 
Barth, uh, they were not perfect. Bonhoeffer was not perfect. He, too, struggled with racist tendencies. At one point, he was asked to officiate at the wedding of... Well, let me go... Let me, let me rephrase this a second. There's racism, and then there's conforming to the racism in society so that you'll be accepted. And this is an example of that. At one point, Dietrich was asked to officiate at the wedding of one of his sisters. What a neat opportunity. The groom was Jewish. And Dietrich gave way to social pressure not to perform the wedding. He initially said it was because he feared it would cause problems for them, but later he felt terrible about it. And he realized that his his silence, his assent to this racism was because of social pressure. And it took a few years, but he came out against anti-Semitism. He came out against it strongly enough to the satisfaction of uh, many Jewish people. So he wasn't perfect, but when he would realize that he had these tendencies taking hold in him, that he was giving way to social pressure, even though he might not have a problem with the Jews, in order to be accepted by society, he was willing to discriminate, he repented of it. And a last little bit of insight. How does a man, a Christian man, a Christian pastor, a theology professor, how does he become embroiled in a plot to assassinate Hitler? How on earth does that happen? Well, again, I'm not justifying anything that he did. As I said, I wasn't justifying uh, pre-World War II Germany. For what they did, I'm not justifying Bonhoeffer for being part of an assassination attempt on Hitler. I'm merely explaining what happened, merely explaining his viewpoint. In one of his essays, Dietrich argued that Nazism was not a legitimate form of government. He felt it was to be resisted on Christian grounds, and he said the church was called to question state injustice, regardless of who that injustice was leveled at. He also said the church had a responsibility to help all victims of injustice, whether they were Christian people or not, whether he agreed with their theology or not, whether he agreed with their lifestyle or not. If they're victims of injustice, he felt they should be helped. And finally, Dietrich said the church and its leaders might be called to put a spoke in the wheel to bring the machinery of injustice to a halt. For Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, for Dietrich, that eventually meant getting involved in the elimination of Hitler.